When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. (laughs) But if you're going to be up on the first round of callers, you better have that phone number memorized. And you better call in a little bit before you hear that music because all four lines are taken. It's going to be Diane and Tom and Kim and Teresa. But you know we'll have a line available for you very shortly on this absolutely gorgeous Sunday morning. Man, if you haven't stepped outside, (laughs) be prepared for a very pleasant day temperature. It was 49 degrees at my house. I I went outside. I went back inside, got a light jacket. And, you know, it's so hard. I guess that's what San Antonio or South Texas weather is all about. One day we have 100 degrees, and two days later you're reaching for a jacket. I guess it just doesn't get much better than that. But anyway, I know it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful day out there. Hope you're planning to spend as much of it as you can outside. And, of course, personally, hope you spend some time doing some gardening because that's such a great therapy with every thing going on around us, but uh, we are here to talk about that, and we need to just get started. So let's bring up Diane. Good morning, Diane. How are you doing? Hello? I'm just, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> I'm doing well, and the two black labs at my feet this morning are being very lazy, so I guess we're all having a pretty good start to the morning. Excellent. Okay, so I have a fig that I air-layered off, it's still attached to the tree. It was a low-hanging limb that I just anchored to the ground. Okay. And I did that back in the fall. And you okay, said, that, now that is called layering. That's not called air layering. Oh, okay, okay. So okay. That, that's the, I know you're a scientific person, so you want to know the derivation of these terms. Layering has been done for generations by nurserymen, and that's where you merely pin that limb. Many times you'll, you know, you'll make a little cut on the side, but you pin it to the ground and let it root. Uh, and then when they figured out you could do that up in the air, then that's when they started using the term air layering. So so what you did that time is a layer, and has it taken root? Well, I don't know. I was afraid to touch it. You said to wait till April. I did not put a cut on it. Okay. I just anchored it, and I covered it with some mulch, and it's been there since the fall, and you said around April. But, I mean, I guess it did. Pe- well, I don't know if it took root. The limb, pull, pull, pull the anchor yeah, pull, pull the anchor up and uh, and see if it still remains attached to the ground. If it does, you're ready to cut it free from mama plant and plant it in a pot or plant it wherever you want to. Now, I'm giving that one away because that's off my tree. But <laughs> well, here's the deal. So I saw I was at uh, somebody's house digging up some, some – they had unwanted plants, and I uh-huh. had a face. So 
I was driving out of their driveway, and I saw their fig tree has some low-hanging small limbs, and mm-hmm. they already have figs. It's a different variety. So right. I wanted to layer it, but this is a totally different time of the year. So... Go right ahead and layer it. The only big difference is going to be that to get it to layer, to get those uh, limbs that you have pinned to the ground. and I mean, it can be as simple as putting a brick on top of them, or I like to take something like a coat hanger or stiff wire and make a U-shape that's 8, 6, 8, 10 inches long that I could just push down into the ground. But that area where the limb is in contact with the ground has to stay moist, and quite you know, obviously you're going to have to re, or they are going to have to re-moisten that soil much more frequently in June and July than they would have to in November or December. Make okay. sense? Yes. Yeah, so would it go would it work faster if I made a small cut where I was going to anchor it and uh-huh. how long would I need to leave it anchored? Um you know, it kind of depends on the weather. In hot weather, four to six weeks, things are going to root like mad. But like I was just saying, here two days ago it was 100 degrees, and today it was 49 degrees. So, it, you know, warm soil, warm temperatures will get the rooting started much more quickly. And if you've got a crystal ball that will tell us about the weather, you and I are going to make some money. <laughs> so I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess six, eight weeks. But, uh, you know, again, we just have to watch the weather and see. It might be four weeks, it might be ten weeks, but that's all going to be dependent on ground temperature, on soil temperature. Okay, and so I'm going to have to be in charge of watering it because she's older and all that stuff. Um, well, put some mulch. I mean, you can yeah. you, uh, you can bury it pretty well. I mean, you can put you know a couple of shovelfuls of dirt over the thing as long as you've got the end exposed where it will continue to get sunlight. I presume it's leafed out by now, so um, uh, you can you can load it up pretty heavily above the layer point to cut down on how frequently you have to water. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to, if if this were you know, an extreme situation where you said, I just can't get there as often as I needed to. Get some of the stuff called soil moist, that hydrophilic colloid that, uh, you know, you can mix into soil to hold more moisture. Mix some, uh, mix some of that in with the soil that you put over your little cut limb and, uh, keep it a little more moist that way. There, there are some creative things that you can do. Oh, that's a great idea. I have some of that. Okay. Now I have another question. Okay. If you have not so fresh seeds, is there anything that you can do to encourage germination, like soaking them in garret juice or something like that? In very dilute garret juice, yes, there certainly is. And it's what it's seed viability is usually an all or nothing thing. In other words, as seed, as a package of seed gets older, you're going to go from uh, a germination rate of 99% to 80% to 50% to 20%. Uh, and so it's not that you're going to have weak seed or weak seedlings. You're just going to have 
a smaller number of seed that are going to germinate. If I were planting in a row, I would uh, sprinkle my seed a little closer together, knowing that a few of the seeds are not going to sprout. If I were putting them in pots, I'd put two or three seeds per pot instead of one, because you can always, uh, you know, pull out <laughs> the extras if more than one sprouts. So, I mean, they they have found seeds in the Egyptian pyramids that were still viable, you know, 2,500 years later. So in the proper condition, many seeds can last a long, long time. But, um, yeah, something like a little bit of Garrett juice, and it's probably the dilute apple cider vinegar that makes the difference. But but make your Garrett juice pretty dilute because uh, make it too strong, it may go the other direction. It may keep them from germinating as well. Okay. And so the seeds for, like, if you want to do sprouts, same thing applies there with regard to germination and length of time it sat in the air-conditioned pantry and all that stuff. Well, and also it depends on the seed because, as you know, the, the starchy food reserve of a seed is called endosperm tissue. And many seeds, especially in dicots, they have those big cotyledons that are loaded up, you know, with nutrients, so to speak. When you look at something like orchid seed, which is as fine as dust, it has virtually no nutrient reserve in there. So I think it's reasonable to figure that a bigger seed, whether it's, you know, a big bean seed or whether it's an acorn, uh, if it has more uh, stored energy in the material in the seed, is going to keep longer. And uh, if it has a very hard seed coat, such as a blue bonnet or such as a mount laurel, Mother Nature has designed that to be able to lie there for years, if need be, before conditions are ripe for it to germinate. So it's it's a lot more than just the age of the seed. It's the type of the seed, uh, the size of the seed. They're just they're just a whole lot of interesting factors that come into play. Okay, well, the cucumber seeds I got at Shades of Green did have a 100% germination rate. Now I have three cucumbers per hole. So I'm going to have to <laughs> cut one or two of them out. <laughs> uh, you can do that, or you can just have them crowded. And, you know, I lots of times I I guess I'm a little soft-hearted or something. I think, you know, I don't want to pull that extra one up. And it doesn't really hurt them to be crowded together. I'd I'd rather thin the leaves out a little bit after they're up and growing. So it's up to you. If you, if you spaced out your little three-seed cluster, you're in good shape but if you've got you know 12 plants coming up at 18 inches a row yeah you better thin those out a bit yeah because my trellis isn't big enough <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a bigger trellis you know they're you're looking at this from the wrong perspective <laughs> uh, yeah that's a whole nother conversation uh, yes ma'am to have on another day anyway there you go good to talk to you bob thank you for everything you do for us and you keep up all the good things you do for us diane i can't tell you how much i've appreciated the uh all the good information you've sent along and it's gone into the hands of everybody from the bernie mayor to many interested friends so uh you keep up your good work as well and it's always a pleasure talking to you you too bye-bye goodbye all right line number two is tom good morning tom Good morning, Bob. How you doing today? Ah, it's a beautiful day. Anybody not doing well this morning is uh, is missing out. It's it's just plain gorgeous out there. Of course, some people will probably complain that it's too cold, but some people just have to complain. But you and I are going to get uh, get out and enjoy this day. Yes, sir. It's a beautiful day for sure. Got some questions about uh, 
controlling algae on a, on a pond. I have about a one-acre, surface-acre pond, and was uh-huh. wondering which is better, uh, cornmeal or hydrogen peroxide? Hydrogen peroxide is not economically viable. Um, peroxide would probably, in some respects, do a much faster job, but you'd spend several hundred dollars on enough peroxide to do an acre pond. Uh, you'll spend, you know, let's see, four, uh, 200 pounds per surface acre at a maximum rate. So you're going to spend $50 or less. Uh, to do it with cornmeal. So I think cornmeal is the only way. Now, here is the thing about uh, controlling algae in a farm pond. You, you have fish in the pond, I presume? Yes, sir, I do. Okay. If you kill too much algae at one time, as it decomposes, the decomposition uh, steals oxygen out of the water. And you never want to be trying to control algae in June or July because the warmer the water is, the less oxygen it holds. And if you start depleting the oxygen supply in the water further by introducing a bunch of decaying vegetation, you may wind up killing your fish. So you need to take your algae control measures, you know, as early as possible in the year. And uh, as Diana and I were just talking, I don't have a crystal ball. And if we stay... If we stay relatively cool, if your water temperature is relatively cool, you're probably fine to go ahead and do it. But I sure wish we had uh, had this conversation in February and you had done it then. You just you just have to be very careful about creating a lot of dead material in the water. Now, if your algae problem is relatively minor, that's not going to be an issue because you're not going to have that much dead algae out there. But if you have a huge amount of algae, you know you're gonna you're gonna create kind of a red tide situation in the water, and you don't want to be doing that. Correct. Makes sense. Yes, I've, yeah. I've gone, went through this last year and during the summer, and yeah. I didn't want to touch it then. But I don't right. have hardly any algae out there right now. Oh, then uh, go for another, it. Okay. Yeah, don't wait. Don't uh, wait for it to get bad. The, let me just tell you one quick thing. The way that it works is the cornmeal deprives, it takes the available, I believe it's potassium, out of the water, which uh, algae has to have to grow. So you're modifying your water chemistry a little bit with your cornmeal is what you're doing. There's nothing toxic about cornmeal, but you're changing the water chemistry and you're taking away an essential nutrient for algae growth. So if you go ahead and put your cornmeal in, assuming that this is not a pond that constantly has a lot of water coming in and going out of it, then you can treat now and your algae control is going to last well into the season. Okay. And uh, My next question then is, reading on uh, the Dirt Doctor, they say it's best to try and find pelletized cornmeal. And I was wondering if you might have a source on where to find pelletized cornmeal. You want to know the truth? I've never heard of pelletized cornmeal. I'll have to ask Howard about that one. You know, if if the idea is to have something that sinks a little bit better, um, what idea. I would just get corn chops. You know, which feed chickens because okay, it doesn't have a corn. Would that work? Yeah. That'll work just fine. The the advantage okay. to cornmeal, of course, is that the finer it's ground, the more surface area it creates. And uh, but in this case, if you want a more of a sinking action, yeah, crack corn or corn chops, or uh, for that matter, you could uh, find somebody's got a sale on deer corn because they didn't sell it all in the fall, and uh, you know. Tell them, hey, I'll haul that off if you want to just give it to me. I mean, it never hurts to ask. <laughs> I, oh, okay. I know when they, so, when I built the lake on. Uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I built the lake on, uh, on, or when the lake was built on my property, I put a lot of structure. I was working under the guidance of a wonderful guy named Kirby Golson, who was with Parks and Wildlife, and we're talking about creating structure, and we were banding together old tires and sinking them, which is, uh, you know, apparently a pretty good way to increase the cover for bass. And I started out going to tire shops and saying, please, 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 can I have those old tires back there? And then when I found out how anxious they were to get rid of them, I found I could drive up and say, hey, I'll, I'll take those tires if you load them in the back of my truck. <laughs> and so, yeah, just just play it smart. Find the best deal you can get. And uh, corn is corn. So, uh uh, use whatever is most readily available to you. The cornmeal will work fastest because of the increase in surface area, but any corn is going to work. All right, Bob. I sure appreciate your answers and your help on this uh, little project well, I'm about to start. You enjoy it, and you let me know how it works out for you. All right. Thank you, Bob. All right. Well, Kim and Teresa are my next two callers, so let's say good morning to Kim. How are you doing this morning? I am doing wonderful. Very good. Nice way to start a day, isn't it? Absolutely. It is gorgeous. Got a little surprise yesterday with the weather. I thought yesterday was going to be a gorgeous day, and it ended up being a little, had a little crazy weather. Well, but uh, if you were south and east, I had somebody in the nursery tell me they actually got a brief hailstorm yesterday, and we watched that big. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Texas. You know, never take anything for granted because. on the coast yesterday and then considering it was supposed to be a beautiful day those plans kind of went south <laughs> well as uh, my engineer and i were just discussing you know a, good, a bad day fishing is better than a good day working or so they say <laughs> oh absolutely no it was, it was very nice um good i have been trying to get in for a couple of weeks you've been very very busy um so i'm going to kind of get to my questions real quick please yeah um, that's great yeah yeah the um my first question was on granular fertilizer. I know that uh-huh. you say that if you're using organic granular fertilizer, it stays in the soil and kind of binds until the plants need it. Um, is there anything in liquid fertilizer in the has to grow, the fish, the liquid fish, that does that same thing, or is that why? Oh, abso- absolutely, absolutely, all. Yeah, it, it's true of all organic fertilizers, and. Um, if you remember a little bit of your kitchen chemistry or physics or whatever science uh, you remember from school, we always remember that uh, uh, unlike charges attract, uh, opposite charges attract, positive is attracted to negative, mm-hmm. and uh, like charges repel. Well, here's the big deal. Our soils overall have a relatively high negative charge level because of the clay in them. Organic fertilizers, virtually all of the nutrient, whether it's liquid or dry, is in the positive form, which we call the cation, because it would be attracted to the cathode on a battery. So most of the nutrient in an organic fertilizer is in a in a cation form, so it stays bound to the anions in the soil until the plants have the plants have a mechanism of breaking it free. Uh, they they can produce a stronger charge, which frees up the nutrient so that they can use it. With your synthetic fertilizer. It is pretty much all in a negative form, nitrates, phosphates, 
you know, sulfates. All those things have a negative charge, so there's nothing to bind them to the soil, and that's why 90% or more of it washes away and causes problems. But any organic fertilizer, you know, whether it's liquid, whether it's granular, whether it's, uh, you know, raw bat guano or whatever, is going to be held in the soil through this principle that we call cation exchange capacity. And I realize that's a lot more than you ask for, but that's that's the why of it and not just the how of it. Any organic fertilizer is going to be bound in our soils because of that positive-negative effect. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I'm glad you gave me all the extra information. I was writing as fast as I could. At least I'll be able to <laughs> kind of go back and look at yeah. it. Well, um, look up cation, cation exchange capacity in almost any book, and you'll find a good discussion. Oh, I'm, I definitely will. Um, so I always, like any time that I put or, you know, plant any of my new cuttings and things like that, and I finally, you know, and I get roots, I always add a little bit of the color essentials and growing green or mm-hmm. yeah, into the soil. Now, yeah. um, I also come back two to three weeks, and sometimes life happens and it's a little further apart, and I tend to fertilize the plant with either the fish or the um, has to grow. Now, uh-huh. why, why, I mean, I guess that does the other, the solid, does it break down slower? Um, yes. Yes, it, it breaks down more slowly. Um, we like to say that plants drink their food rather than eat their food, although recent um, discoveries show that they can actually take in through their cell wall much larger particles than we ever dreamed that they could. But any liquid fertilizer is going to be much faster acting uh, than the, its equivalent uh, granular fertilizer. So that's why we use both. I, I always put the dry in when I plant because I figure if I get too busy to get around to putting the liquid out, my plants are still going to have nutrition for the next two or three months. But in an ideal world, I put the dry in when I plant, but then I'm going to start right away every two or three weeks fertilizing with a liquid fertilizer. And uh, let's just say I've been pretty good at that this year, and I've got the most gorgeous tomato plants I've had in 10 years. It's, uh, But that's that's the what and the why. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and I do, I've been following your, your lead on that, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, kind of the information behind it. So sure. thank you very much. Now, uh, my second question is on the apple cider vinegar. Um, uh-huh. A couple weeks ago, I heard you and Howard talking about adding that to the foliar spray of seaweed and molasses. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? I didn't want to go spraying apple cider vinegar on all my leaves if that was not Well, you use, you use a very small amount of it, and what you're doing is adding a little bit of acidity, which makes things a little bit more soluble. And uh, that's a small amount of apple cider vinegar is very good. Too much of it can be toxic. So um, if I'm making my seaweed molasses spray, it would be two tablespoons of seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses, and maybe a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar. Okay. Um, is it the same? Like, I've actually already used this, put some apple cider vinegar into my um, fish and has to grow mm-hmm. for yeah. fertilizing in the ground when I've kind of uh-huh. used up my little uh, concoction that I make. Okay. Is it more equal parts when you put it into the ground versus spraying it on the leaves or not? 
Oh, I don't know. I'd have to try and see. If you're having good luck, keep on doing what you're doing. I, okay. I, you know, it doesn't always get mixed into my drench because I make a lot of, <laughs> takes me, I, I mix it in five gallon buckets and it takes quite a few buckets. Uh, and I can't say that I, that I add apple cider vinegar all the time. And the truth is, I don't measure much. You know, it, it's kind of a, that looks like about the right amount. So uh, I, I definitely add a little bit more to what goes in the ground, but I'm not going to tell you if it's equal parts. It's probably still not quite that much. Well, yeah, yeah I'm like you. I just kind of dump, 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 dump. But, yeah. And then I make one, and then I mix it all together, and then I put, start just adding an ounce to my gallon container. Cause it's there you go. For me to move that yeah. around. All right. Absolutely. Um, I have one more question. The, um, the Howard Garrett's um, certification program that, yes. he, that you guys are talking about quite a bit, mm-hmm. is that comparable to being like a master gardener? What does the certificate do? Or what? Well, yeah, the, cer- the certificate, the <laughs> you know, the certificate makes you feel good, if you want my personal okay. opinion. I think you would get probably ten times more out of Howard's course than you get after the, out of the Master Gardener course, because he covers a much broader range of topics, and, of course, everything he talks about is organic, and with the Master Gardeners, unless you happen to be where you've got Dottie Woodson or somebody that is in an organic bent is uh, teaching the master gardeners courses uh, you're not going to get much organics there so uh, to me uh, you're going to learn a lot more practical information that certificate is fun to have and it probably would get you uh, you know get your foot in the door for a job at a given nursery but um, uh, it's kind of like a diploma <laughs> it's uh, I, 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 uh, I feel like if I did the master gardener, I would be in an argumentative state most of the time and a defensive state. So I'm kind of like, um, and I've always in my mind wanted to, but then the last five years I've done completely the organic. Not Sure. You know, just, well, and, and the I, thing I, about I the master. Phenomenal. Yeah, the Master Gardener program, too, you're expected to give back, which is certainly understandable. Uh, if you want to go sort of halfway in between an organization that is mostly organic, does not have the politics of the Master Gardener program, look at the what the Garden Volunteers of South Texas do. And uh, I go to their meetings when I'm not busy doing other things, simply because they sometimes have speakers that are a lot smarter than me that I can go learn from. Most recently went to hear David Vaughn talk and came away with a notebook full of information, so take a look at the at the uh, organic garden or the garden volunteers of South Texas, but also be looking around if you want to take Howard's course. He's doing a two for one now, so that uh, if you pay to take his course, uh, a friend can also take it free of charge. So uh, uh, split the difference with somebody, and you'll get the course for half price, and you'll both get a very good thing. But I, I was just talking on a totally different subject off uh, during one of the breaks with my engineer and quoting uh, Einstein who said it's far better if people discover independently that you won the Nobel Prize than if you wear it around your neck (laughs) so that diploma that certificate whatever is nice to have but uh, you know you don't have to hang it around your neck to let people know how smart you are they'll figure it out on their own after they talk to you all righty well I appreciate all of the information this morning and now I'm going to go put some of that good information to use All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Teresa is next. Good morning, Teresa. 
morning. I have a question on roses. Okay. Um, I I have an established rose, maybe like five, six years old, and it's in uh-huh. a pot, a big pot. But I want to see, can I transport it, transfer it to another pot that has a rose that's only one, it's a one stem, and the other one is only one stem also. Sure. Yeah, you okay. you know, yeah, almost you kind of have to look at what kind of rose, what variety of rose it is, and ask yourself how big it is ultimately going to get. For instance, a Belinda's Dream is a rose that wants to be six feet tall and six feet wide, and so it's not going to cohabitate real well with a little small plant that it would just totally shade out. But on the other hand, if we were going to, you know, put a Caldwell pink with a Martha Gonzalez or something, those are both fairly short-statured roses, and it would be fine, or miniature roses. You can put two or even three of them in the same pot. So consider what the rose is and think about what it's going to be when it uh, grows up, because even a rose that's just one stem now, uh, year, two years from now, it may be may have ten stems and be real bushy. So uh, nothing wrong with combining them, but I don't want you to look back a year from now and say, oh, Oh wow, that was a mistake. There's not room for both of them in there. But but you certainly can. The point is, it's just if it's a fairly small statured rose, by all means, put it with another one. Okay. If it's one that on its own is going to turn into a monster, it needs to be by itself. Okay. And then my climbing rose, I cut yes. it down back in uh, before the February. Okay, but that's a mistake. Not, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Ah. Uh, I'm glad my husband's not listening. But uh, <laughs> the leaves are, yeah, because this is his rose, and there's no buds in it. And the yep. leaves are being eaten by, I guess, caterpillars or something. Yeah. You can control the caterpillars with uh, the spray we call BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, add a little bit of molasses to it, and it will remain on the leaves for a long period of time, and it will totally control the caterpillar problem. But I okay, promise but I won't... Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't uh, worry about the damaged leaves at this point. That uh, that rose needs every leaf it has just to okay. absorb the sun's energy. But now I'll keep our secret just between you and me. But here's the thing about the difference in bush roses and climbing roses. Bush roses bloom on new growth, the growth that they produce this spring. So bush roses, we prune them back around February, and they put out all this new growth, and then they're covered with flowers. Climbing roses, for the most part, it's 99% true, climbing roses bloom on the wood that formed last fall. So if we prune them at the same time we prune our bush roses, we've just cut all the, off all the flower buds for this spring, and we're going to have very few, if any, blooms this spring. So bush roses, we prune them in February. Climbing roses, we let them bloom first and then prune them after they have bloomed. So, uh, again, we're not going to tell that to anybody but you and me, but uh, no, that's husband, what went wrong my there. My husband's just hearing me right now, and he just pointed <laughs> the finger at me, so I'm done. <laughs> I hope it wasn't the middle finger. I hope it was his index finger. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's still pointing at me, so that's a good thing. Uh, okay. But I'm outside, so I think I'm just going to stay outside for the rest of the morning. Uh, <laughs> I think that's safer. Uh, I maybe so. so but, but there's hope next year. Oh, absolutely. But wait on, on any climbing rose, prune it after it blooms. On any bush rose, prune it before it, before it uh, starts putting on its spring growth. Okay. All right. Well, Great. thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Great <laughs> question, Teresa. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. 
All right, it's going to be Steve and Penny and Arthur and Barbara. I'm sure James just had to go off to work. Uh, back to the phone line. Steve's first. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Bob. Uh, morning, sir. you were talking about green beans to plant right now, and I, I heard you right. say something about contender, but I missed the other ones that you, the other varieties that you were talking about. You know, I'm a bigger fan of bush beans than I am of pole beans, and my right. favorite bush beans for summertime, contender is probably number one. Top crop is another good one for the heat. Uh, there is one called bush blue lake. Blue lake comes as either a climber or as a bush bean, but those are probably my top three, contender, top crop, and bush blue lake. Okay, because I had planted some, I, I have them, they're up, pretty high now the uh burpee stringless green pod and i right. noticed uh-huh. even, you know i'm out here in spring branch we've had some pretty hot dry wind and the tops are kind of curling and browning is that just because this is not a good variety for the heat well, it's because it's because it's a high dry wind and sudden high temperatures. I've not grown that one, so we're really just going to have to watch it and see how it does. Um, you know, bush beans are one that is only going to really be good for 45 to 60 days. You're going to be planting more than one crop if you want to be picking green beans all summer. So I would just, uh, how long, if, if these things must already be pretty good size. They're probably getting close to blooming size. They're they're starting to put up the little bloom spikes right now, yeah. Okay. I, and I was going to you plant know, a couple more rows today, which is why I was <laughs> Yes, happy. sir. Well, and I think uh, I think that's a very good idea. But I think I would plant uh, I'd plant a couple of different varieties, and then keep records yeah. and see which ones do best for you. I mean, everybody's garden is different. I've got a neighbor two miles down the road from me that uh, <laughs> he's gotten a little bit competitive because he always wants to see if he can beat me at gardening. And I have to admit that he he had the first crookneck squash this year. So uh, keep some records, figure out what's best, and uh, get all the bragging rights you can manage yeah well my selections are a little limited out here in spring branch i gotta go down sure. to Volverde or up to blanco and you know I, it's all well, you can to get to a real nursery and that's pretty far for me so anyway, but you know if you find. if you do anything on the internet check out david's garden seeds he probably doesn't oh, yeah. want me to talk about him right now because he is so darn busy he told me he had shipped thirty-two thousand orders in the last three months uh but david wow. is very reasonably priced uh, his seed packets are not as large as some of the others but he'll ship it to your door if you're ever looking for seeds you can't find uh go on the internet check out david's garden seed because he's heck of a nice guy and real good quality seed Will do. Just one more quick question. Um, I'm trying yes, to get rid of some oleander, and uh-huh. of course you chop that back, and it's pretty invasive, and it just grows out. What's your recommendation for getting rid of permanently? You know, it's almost like bamboo. It just keeps coming back and keeps spreading. <laughs> well, unlike bamboo, it's it's all coming back from the same stump, as it were, the same clump. It doesn't produce underground runners, which is what makes bamboo so... Uh, so hard to get rid of. It's called uh, a grubbing hoe and uh, a good deal of energy, unless you have a backhoe, which makes things easier, but a grubbing hoe is what I end up using. But And and remember, it doesn't re-sprout from the roots. It's re-sprouting in effect from the stump. So yeah. don't worry if you leave a ton of roots in the ground. But I just, you know, I'll just start on one side and just, I was doing the same thing to an Andina recently, uh, one of the old-fashioned, not-so-desirable varieties, and I'm just making a circle around it, chopping the roots, and uh, okay. with about five minutes of 
of uh, a good exercise. I have to look at it as exercise rather than work. About five minutes, right. so you should be able to get that stuff out. Okay, that's all for me. Thanks, Bob. You're sure welcome, Steve. Thank you, sir. Penny is next. Let's talk to Penny. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Oh, I can't complain, especially if you can help me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, so about a month ago, we planted some of that, uh, the zoysia, um, mm-hmm. the toro, the el toro zoysia. That's one of and the good ones. It seems to be like taking off, but there's a lot of spots where it looks kind of almost like it's dead. Maybe uh-huh. just as, maybe a little crunchy. Uh, we water it a couple of times a day, but we live like on a corner on a hill, so it gets like a sure. lot of wind and a lot of sun. Uh-huh. So we how how long is your how long has it been planted? About a month. Okay, exactly you can you can you can cut back to watering maybe every other day or even every third day. After a month, it should have some pretty good roots down. And did they did you roll the grass after you planted it? No, sir. Yeah, well, Okay. See, that's one of the most important things. Had a long conversation with somebody yesterday about that. Rolling the grass is very important because it presses the new sod tightly against the soil underneath and it takes out all the air pockets. And if you don't do that, you're going to have little sections where air was underneath the piece of sod and it's just going to die because the roots couldn't grow down to the soil because they weren't pressed tightly against it. Now that's the bad news. Here's the good news and that is that Tiff is one of the toughest, hardiest grasses in the world, and your good surrounding grass will spread into those dead areas, and ultimately you'll have a really beautiful lawn. The other thing about Bermuda is that it does not like cool weather. It likes it not just warm, but it likes it hot. So your tiff is going to be a little slow getting started as long as we had. If you're in Spring Branch, you probably had upper 40s just like I did this morning west of Bernie. And it when the, that tiff Bermuda would love for it to be 90, 95, 100 degrees. And But it's, uh, it's fond of fertilizer. It likes to be watered thoroughly when it's watered. So if you haven't fertilized, I get some good organic fertilizer, Nature's Creation, Medina, Maestro, whichever. I would get that on. I would be cutting back to watering about every third day now, but I'd be watering thoroughly when I water it. And a month from now, I think you're going to be amazed at how good your yard looks. Okay, so, and and this was the zoysia that we had. That I'm we sorry, had zoysia, yeah. 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 Um, so if we water it in those spots where it looks like it's dead, it'll be okay not watering that for a couple of days? It will be just fine, and any spots that are uh, that are dead, um, put a little thin layer of compost. Yeah, I said Bermuda, I meant zoysia. Zoysia is very much the same in its growth, but put just like a half-inch layer of compost, and that will help the surrounding sprigs of El Toro grow into that area more quickly. Okay, um, so, and then we had also, we had bought the, the liquid uh, has mm-hmm. to grow lawn with that, right. or would you recommend just use the granule, the Medina? I I would use the granular Medina for now. I would want that grass. Has to grow lawn is a high high powered fertilizer. I'm going to let my grass get established for probably six months before I start using that. Okay, okay. And we did do uh, compost before we put the sod down. 
Well, but see, that's not the right thing to do um, because your grass roots need oxygen and compost produces lots of carbon dioxide. So if you do any more, put the sod down first and put the compost on top of the sod rather than underneath okay. it. It'll help your roots get established more quickly. Okay, perfect. Was that all? That was, nice. that was it. I think you got it. Then you, you get out and enjoy this beautiful day. <laughs> get yes, out and roll around in your new El Toro. <laughs> Thanks, Penny, and we'll talk again. All right, I've just got about 25 seconds here until news. Arthur and Barbara, you guys will be the next two callers when we come back. It is a gorgeous day out there. If you're working in the garden, yeah, I think it's time to plant okra. If you're working in the flower beds, boy, you have a lot of fun things. And I'm going to say it's okay to plant your vinca and periwinkle now because we're definitely going to be getting warmer. Need something to do, I can sure help you find something to do. This is KTSA Radio in San Antonio, Texas. And I know you've been getting a busy signal ever since the uh, show started, but a couple of open lines. Now would be a good time to dial 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Arthur and then Barbara, and Arthur is up first. Good morning, Arthur. Morning, Bob. You're morning, there, sir. Uh, can you hear me, sir? You're, I hear you loud and around. clear. I think everybody wants to call you. <laughs> well, I'm very flattered by the number of listeners and the number of callers we had. I'm glad you got through. I got a series of questions. I'm, I'll just ask them, and you can pick and choose what you can answer. Okay. And due to the you know health crisis we're in, I think it's time for me to start a home garden. Um, okay. I've got an area that I'm looking at that's like 16 by 24. And I'm just wondering if that's a good size. Um, you know, do I need there's... to raise the Do I need to raise the uh, the area with some good soil? And then I got deer, so what kind of fence do you recommend? Chain link fence is not allowed in the subdivision, but I'd have to get an approval on that. Uh huh. And, uh, and well, um, that's about you know uh, the way to start or to get information to get started. I've never done one. Well, there's no such thing as a garden that's too big or too small. I always tell people to create as big a garden as they can manage but a garden's a lot of work and how big a garden you can manage is simply going to depend on you know how many other demands you have in your life and how much time you have to put into it now um it is, uh, you know, the important thing is that your garden's going to need full sun. So if that 16 by 24 area is out where it pretty much gets sun from, you know, morning till night, it's an ideal place to have a garden. Uh, but if it's, if it's very shady, uh, not going to be a real good place for vegetables. But raised beds are nice because, you know, it allows you to bring in very good soil and they're absolutely necessary if you're just sitting on a slab of rock. But, uh, what what part of town are you in? I'm in Garden Ridge. Okay. Well, soil. yeah. It, then then it's strictly up to you whether you do a raised bed or not. And if you do a raised bed, uh, it only needs to be raised slightly. I mean, you could you could raise it six inches. If you're sitting on a slab of rock, I'd tell you that your garden sides need to be like 24 inches high, which is a huge amount of soil. Since you're on relatively decent soil, if you want to create a small raised portion, you can. If you would to just put you know a couple of inches of compost on top of the soil and blend it 
it in. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that a raised bed is absolutely mandatory. It, uh, you have decent enough soil that you could garden in what you have. And of course, as you, you know, add organic fertilizers, you add the rock powders and things, your garden is just going to get better and better year after year. So, um, the, there are various sources of information. Howard Garrett and Malcolm Beck wrote a really good book called the Texas Vegetable Garden Book. And for a book, that is one of the, that's probably the single best one. I probably would also get a second book that the same two gentlemen wrote that's called the Texas Bug Book because inevitably you're going to have questions and I love the subtitle of the book is uh, the Texas Bug Book, the good, the bad, and the ugly because there are a lot of very good insects that you would like to have in the garden but there are a number of bad insects that you want to get rid of if they show up so those are going to be two good sources of information. In general, the Internet is your worst source of information because 98% of what's on the Internet is done for a different part of the country. Now, Howard's website, which is dirtdoctor.com, you will find information on there, which is uh, very good information for South Texas. But, boy, don't just be on there Googling because you're going to get totally wrong advice because they're going to be telling you what to be doing in Ohio and not what to do in South Texas. So um, those are two good books. If you're ever by our place, which is called Shades of Green, we've got a little uh, front and back handout we would happily give you, which gives our recommended planting dates and a lot of just good basic information. And it's certainly free, which makes it very attractive. But uh, I'm happy to help you with that. But if you're looking for books, those are the two I would get. And beyond that, um, the deer are going to have to stay out one way or another. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to find out what your homeowner's covenants will and won't allow. Um, any kind of fence really will keep the deer out. If it's just a straight up and down fence, it needs to be pretty tall because a deer can jump a six foot fence, especially if they can see what's on the other side of it. Uh, the fence around my vegetable garden is seven and a half feet, but I'm sure you get a lot of hassle about that. One thing you can do if you can get a six-foot fence is then put some extra poles or something along there and then just string a couple of pieces of wire up at the seven-and-a-half-foot level and maybe put a little... You know, a few little pieces of this uh, ribbon they call scare tape kind of uh, reflects a lot of light. And the deer would be very hesitant to try to jump over that. But uh, HOAs are a big pain in the you-know-what. So... Um, <laughs> it's, I, I wish you luck in dealing with that, but just, you know, tell them, hey, I want to have a vegetable garden. And it's kind of like rainwater catchment. You, they cannot tell you that you can't have rainwater catchment. It's in the state law that you are able to have rainwater catchment, but they may have some say about where you put the tanks. So I can't imagine in good conscience that as long as you do it in a semi-attractive fashion, I can't imagine them. I think you could uh, you could put them in an embarrassingly bad light if they're telling a person they can't grow a garden with everything that's going on in the country right now. So I wish you luck on that. But it, the uh, and, and they probably wouldn't like it. But the Texas uh, Parks and Wildlife Department, and you can get with them, and they can describe to you. They have come up with basically a three-wire system, where the three wires are offset, and we're talking, you know, just electric fencing, 
which uh, is very good for keeping out, you know, dogs and various other things along with raccoons. But they have an effective three-wire system that doesn't require such a high fence. But, uh, again, I'd, I'd sure ask before you do that. And that it's, it's a real neat system, but there's no way I can describe it on the radio. But call the local Department of Texas that, Parks that, and that, Wildlife. That reminds me, uh, an old-timer told me years ago, if you want to keep the deer out, put a fence up and then put uh, go three fence and put another fence up and they'll never jump it. That's exactly right. Uh, and even a relatively low fence because they're, they're high jumpers, they're not broad jumpers. So if they can't see where they're going to land or if there's something, you know, in the area that they would normally land in, you certainly can stop them that way. Um, you're, again, it's just going to take up more of your space and, uh, uh, that garden could get smaller unless you can expand it outwards. But, uh, you know, a two-fence system that's, oh, even as much as four to five feet tall will certainly stop them. Well, thanks, and that's why everybody wants to call you. <laughs> Arthur, it's my pleasure, and uh, you don't hesitate to call anything we can do to help you get off to a good start. I will tell you, uh, starting this late, uh, still a great time to plant bush beans, great time to plant cucumbers and squash. Uh, right now, it's just, just time to start planting okra. On tomatoes, I'm going to recommend that you plant maybe mainly cherry tomatoes because large-fruited tomatoes stop producing well when the night temperatures get hot, and unfortunately, and that's not too far away. But cherry tomatoes will produce all summer, as will peppers, as will eggplant. So uh, we can fill up that 16 by 24 foot space with, uh, I love, I don't especially like the company, but the line they use where they say, turn your backyard into the produce aisle. So let us help you any way we can to, to accomplish that. Well, that's a, uh, another conversation. I want to get the first basics in first. That's what you have to do if you let us help any way we can. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, next up is Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How about you? I'm great. Um, I Good. normally call about my vegetable garden, but it's doing well. We ate a ton of Swiss chard from the last <laughs> Very <laughs> it's, good. It's growing like crazy. Um, but I'm calling about my grass. Uh, we normally go away some in the summer. We go up north, um, and... We've, over the last three years, pretty much lost all our um, We used to have, uh, we were out in Bull Birdie. Um, uh-huh. In front, uh, we, had, we had 419 tips that we probably put in mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Um, okay. It, it's gone now. Um, in the whole back part, uh, we're on an acre, but probably, <laughs> probably a half an acre of actual grass with the, the building. Um, uh-huh. So it, it, we've got pretty much entirely weeds. I did put down uh, ryegrass, which is now dying out and getting really thin. Mm-hmm. And under right. that, there seems to be just dirt, just nothing except weeds. So we don't want to spend the money to um, to saw the entire entire uh, half acre. Oh, or I, I agree completely. Um, yeah. But, but the front part, um, so we're wanting to seed and wanting to know maybe how to prepare that. Um, and the front part, though, I'm wondering if we seed, uh, we have a deer problem in the front. Um, are they going to eat the seed, or should we go ahead and saw it in the front? And I guess the other part is if we if we seed, what do we do to prepare to seed? Okay, are the deer that you have all white tails, or are they axis as well? Yes. Pretty much white tails. 
Okay, whitetails are browsers. They're not grazers. Whitetails, for the most part, don't eat grass. So that's not going to be an issue there. At least that's one good thing. Uh, the big question is, how are you going to water? And um, do you have a system that can uh, water automatically? Hopefully the country will get back to a little closer to normal and you'll be able to, to escape the heat, which I'm sure is what yes. you're trying to do in the summertime. So you have a good sprinkler oh, we, system. We do have a sprinkler system, and um, it had been broken a couple of years ago, and uh, we had people staying here in it, and uh, and they weren't able to use it because it had broken. So basically, uh-huh. out back, the whole thing is gone, um, except for weeds. So mm-hmm. what do we do to prepare maybe and seed out there? Well, as the preparation is just mow off, you know, whatever is there in weeds. And if it's a large amount of material, rake it up, dispose of it, or give it a little time to decompose before you put your grass seed down. Now, the only permanent grass that you can plant from seed is Bermuda grass and there are lots of varieties of Bermuda I don't think you need to go with anything more than common Bermuda uh, for what you're talking about Uh, and there are a couple of slightly improved varieties like blackjack and uh, um, princess is a little weaker I probably wouldn't go with that one but just just get a good Bermuda seed and when you put the seed down you're going to need to keep it moist which means maybe water it twice a day maybe even three times a day depending on you know how late in the summer it is when you when you get your seeding done but the watering can be very very brief I mean water it for five minutes two or three times a day in order to get your Bermuda grass germinated and growing and then you can cut back the way that I usually recommend uh, people busy people especially do is don't try to do the whole thing at once pick a spot that's you know uh, 50 by 50 or something like that clear that seed that water that once your little seed has sprouted and started to grow then move next to it and do another 50 by 50 area and over the period of just a few weeks you'll have your whole backyard done but i'm not going to tell you (laughs) to clear and plant a half an acre of seed because it's going to drive you crazy trying to really get it up and established so start up close to the house start up the area where you want most to have the grass and then just work your way back until the whole area is done and remember that uh, Bermuda grass loves fertilizer. You can, if you use an organic fertilizer, you can actually put some fertilizer down before you plant your grass seed. And if your Bermuda has a chance to get well established, even in a dry summer, even if that sprinkler system breaks for a couple of weeks, unlike St. Augustine, St. Augustine gets dry, it dies. Bermuda gets dry, it turns brown, and unless it stays dry for an excessively long period of time, it greens right back up when we get uh, more moisture. So, um, right. you know, there's no there's no perfect grass, but in your situation where... Where you want to have something other than weeds, but you don't want to be a slave to your yard, uh, I'm just going to go with uh, one of the good common Bermudas out there. I'm just going to take my time at getting it started, and I'm not going to worry about the deer. But we don't we don't need in the backyard. There are no deer because we're fast, uh-huh. oh okay. We don't we don't need to put down topsoil first or anything. No, out there. no. If the soil is good enough to grow weeds, it's good enough to grow Bermuda grass. Okay, and then in the front part, if we put down. Um, seed, basically same thing. The, the deer are not going to bother it. No, they're not going to bother it at all. Now tell me what you have in the way of trees. Um, 
in the front yard, well, in the backyard, we have a lot of oaks, but, um, okay. you know, there's a lot of open area as well. In the front yard, we okay. have one uh, red oak that it uh, takes up, you know, probably, I don't know, a quarter of the front yard coverage. Okay. Well, your Bermuda's not going to do well in the shade of, you know, big trees like that. And unfortunately, if you want grass in the shade, it's going to have to be St. Augustine. And if you want St. Augustine, it's going to have to be planted from sod because there is no such thing. They sell what they call carpet grass seed, but that's not St. Augustine and you do not want it. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit the, the bigger areas first. I'm going to, uh, you know, use the Bermuda seed and and then I'm going to be thinking, okay, in the shady areas, do I just want to put down mulch? Do I want to get some St. Augustine sod? Do I want to plant some ground cover instead? And that's more um, that's more out back than in front because deer like to eat most ground covers. But uh, just don't try to do this all at once. You're going to break your back, and it's not going to be fun. I want you to... I want you to enjoy the process, but the the beauty of having an acre of ground and half an acre of yard is that you've got some space around you. But you just it's it's not pleasant if you're trying to do everything at once. If you, I'm sure you understand exactly what I mean by that. But I, I just do it in bite-sized chunks. Whether you do the front first, the back first. Um, but but you're like I say your sunny areas Bermuda's going to be easy it's going to be cheap uh, it's the shady areas you're going to have some decisions to make on what you want long term. Okay, perfect. I have one last quick question. Um, a nectarine tree I put in probably oh gosh we probably put it in six seven years ago. It's always done pretty well, um, but it's it's an area that has a lot of rocky you know just, mm-hmm. just rock, you know out back. Um, right. And this year. It's not coming, half of it's coming back, and not the other half. The other half of it looks dead. Should I cut it off, or cut off the dead stuff, or just let it go, or fertilize it, or what? Well, you're never going to get much production with one nectarine. If you if you want nectarines, you're probably going to have to have two trees. And nectarines, for the most part, are a higher chilling tree than your peaches. So have you ever gotten a good crop off of the tree? No. Uh, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, then take it out and put in something that's going to do better. I mean, nectarines are a great tree for uh, maybe even for Sisterdale, maybe for Fredericksburg. But, uh, you know, if you're much further south, uh, they are such high chilling trees, most of them 850, 900 hours, that they're never going to produce much. And uh, you almost always have to have two trees to get some cross-pollination. So, um that's that's a losing bet there now if you want to plant some peach trees we can have that discussion but i wouldn't put a lot of time or money into that nectarine okay okay it may be going all right thank you so much (laughs) all right back to gardening on an absolutely gorgeous morning it is going to be uh let me see here (laughs) don just sent me these going to be Marilyn, larry linda and wayne and uh marilyn is up next good morning marilyn yeah, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, where do you get a grubbing hoe? I have tried, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's. I've tried uh, Sunset Ridge. I've tried uh, quite a few uh, other places. Where do you get one? Golly, I I would have certainly thought that uh, all of those places should have them. Um, uh, you, and you've tried Lowe's? You've tried Home Depot? Yes, uh, they don't have anything called a grubbing hoe. Okay. They have some 
toes that have like a big pointy thing on one end and then a small rectangular thing to uh, like a hoe. Uh, but there, it's not. I've found nothing that is called a grubbing hoe. Well, they people just you know they. <laughs> A lot of people don't understand terminology. Um, You know what a pickaxe looks like. A grubbing hoe. A grubbing hoe is going to be about the same. Well, it's going to be about the same weight, but on one edge, it's going to have like if you if you had a flat portion and then you turned it up vertically instead of horizontally, it's going to have in effect what looks. I hate to call it like an axe blade because it's not that sharp, but it's going to be basically um, like a blade that you could chop with. And it's going to be probably about six inches long and about, oh, I'm holding my fingers up here to look at it, probably three inches high. Then on the back side, it's going to be like a flat, if you took the back half of that pickaxe, but spread it out to where it's about three inches wide. Um, and good, strong, heavy metal. I mean, this should be, you should be able to pry a rock out of the ground and not even think twice about bending this. this the whole, the grubbing hoe is probably going to weigh, oh golly, how much would that be? Six or seven pounds, something like that. This is not a flimsy kid's tool. This is a working tool. But uh, I always compare it to, it's like a modified pickaxe. It's just take the front side, put a blade on there and turn it up in a vertical position the back side you've got a longer probably oh 16 or maybe maybe 14 inch long flat blade that's going to be slightly curved um what whereabouts do you live uh in bernie Okay. I was going to say, if you were in San Antonio, come by Shades of Green, I'll show you exactly what one looks like. Um, well, I may be oh. over there maybe next week. I could probably just ask. Do uh, do that, and uh, you'll see an old beaten-up grubbing hoe that has chopped you know, more plants than you can possibly imagine. Other than that, go by Kim Frobacy's place over there, Hill Country African Violets. If anybody in the area knows what a grubbing hoe is, Ken will. Whether he sells them or not, I don't know. But uh, if you're in Bernie, that would be probably the first place I would try. And if you haven't discovered them, I know everybody in Bernie comes towards San Antonio, but go the other direction. Go up to Comfort and uh, go into Bonert's. Have you ever been in Bonert's? Slumber and Hardware? No. It will be B-O-H-N-E-R-T. Did did you ever go to Bergman's Lumber and Bernie? Yeah. When they were around? Yes. Okay. Bonert's is like Bergman's on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Steve has almost everything. The boss man in there is Steve Bonert, but uh, he's got just some top, top quality help in there. And I can almost promise you they will both know what a grubbing hoe is, and they will have a top quality. And well, that's got to be where I go for, you know, basically all of my gardening tools. It's where I buy Oh, metal roofing. Uh, it's just they are not into they're into quality. I'll put it that way. Their prices are very reasonable. But whereas Home Depot is going to sell you the cheapest, crappiest thing they can put out there, they sell on price alone. Steve is going to charge you slightly more and give you a a tool or a product that can last for a long, long time. And this is not an advertisement for Boner's Lumber, but I would sure do one <laughs> if they ever wanted me to. And uh, like I say, if you're not if you don't get all 
all the answers you need, ask for Steve himself, and you'll find her to be a delightful man. Well, I'm definitely going to make a trip up there because uh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> well, and, and again, it's just kind of an old-fashioned hardware store, lumber yard, have everything you could ever want in the way of a tool. I bought two excellent wheelbarrows from them in the past three or four months. And uh, anyway, I and they sell, oh gosh, you'll just be amazed. You get up there and tell them I said hello. And, and I always tease them. One of their kind of manager guys is named Nick. He is one of the smartest guys around when it comes to rainwater detachment or catchment and all sorts of things. And I always, always tell people, and I tell Nick this to his face so I'm not insulting him. I say, look for the guy that looks like a homeless person. And that's Nick. And he's one of your best sources of information information but uh oh he's uh, they're just all great people i think you love owners okay well i'll definitely make a trip up there thank you bob you're welcome marilyn and let me know if you need further help and if you're in town stop by and i'll show you what uh, our hard work and grub and hoe looks like thank you so much all right larry's up next good morning larry good morning bob morning okay. sir before I ask you a question, I think I have the answer for Marilyn's question. Okay. Native American Seed in oh, okay. Uh-huh. they have a catalog, and they got some really neat-looking grubbing. Uh, you know, oh, okay. heavy-duty, you could build trails with this. <laughs> well, that's good. Native American Seed is great for all kinds of native grass seed and things, but I did not know they had a tool catalog. I'll certainly put that in my memory banks. It's all in the tool. It's all in their seed catalog. They got a page of uh, three or four different kinds of hoes. Very good, Bob. Uh, I'm calling because I'm fighting the crabgrass so badly in my backyard. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, I'm grubbing it out. You know, digging it out, uh, cutting it short, and hauling the clippings away. Uh, put out pre-emergent. I put out uh, cornmeal. Uh, gluten meal, whatever. Oh, that's that's a waste. That's a waste of time. <clears throat> I think that's a waste of time. You know, if I could think of a place for you to go on vacation, I'd tell you to mow it low and go on a two-week vacation. It's probably going to be mostly dead when you get back because it is, like you say, it is all dying out. Here's the way, the best way that I can tell you to prevent crabgrass. It is the first grass that comes up in the spring. It comes up way before your Bermuda and other grasses start to come out and you can go out when you first see the little green sprouts of grass along with the dandelions and hembit and things like that go out and spray the whole yard with vinegar and orange oil it will not hurt your dormant bermuda and hopefully we have a cold enough winter that your saint augustine is dormant uh, it will not hurt your dormant permanent grass but in 15 minutes it will kill every little sprig of crabgrass coming up along with every dandelion and everything else but uh you spent four times or ten times as much money as you needed to and a lot more effort than you really need to and at this point i'm going to tell you you're wasting your time to do much anything other than mow it off but two weeks of hot weather it's pretty much going to be gone you know i i went through i i blend like the nine percent and the twenty percent vinegar i've Uh gone through uh, you know five jugs of each in my backyard along with the orange oil it's well you just you need to get it on early you need to get it on when it's the only green thing out there and mm-hmm. it'll be super effective if you wait till it gets up and big 
it'll take multiple sprayings and you wind up worrying about damaging some of the good stuff but it just usually about the middle to the end of february one spraying should pretty much eliminate your crab breast problems for the spring uh-huh okay uh the second question have you ever heard of tacova 31 grass it's Tahoma 31. It's a brand new Bermuda grass out there. I, you know, I don't know the grass. I do know the people that are advertising it, selling it. Dell's Grass Farm. They're good people. They've been in business about 30 years, and I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be selling if it weren't a good grass. But uh, I haven't grown it myself, so beyond that, they're touting its cold hardiness, which I think is kind of silly because all Bermuda is totally cold hardy here uh, they're touting its drought resistance and that you know I, I'm presuming and they don't put it in their commercials but I'm presuming that what they mean is it will stay nicer looking before it starts browning out because most all of your Bermuda grasses are drought tolerant in that they won't die they'll turn brown and get ugly if they don't get water but they'll come back out when you know with the first good rain so um, it's a good question Question. One of these days, and it's not going to be any time soon, as crazy as things are right now, I'll get out to Dell's and, and take a look at it, maybe get a couple of squares of it and plant so I can give you a better answer. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm putting in 14, 12, 14 hour days at the nursery now. So don't expect me to do it in the next two weeks. But uh, go by and talk to them. And like I say, they're, they're very reputable people. I don't believe they would be selling it if they had not had good luck in growing it. I was thinking about driving down there and getting a pallet of it and uh, sure. p- spreading it out in my Bermuda grass lawn. Well, as long I mean, as you my, have my uh, you know, your weed patch, <laughs> I you know it, you're going to have to. Uh, I would still roll it when you put it out. You're going to have to water it and maintain it. And like mm-hmm. other Bermuda grasses, I'm sure it's basically a full sun grass, but. Uh, uh, just remember, grasses uh, have to be planted like the day after they come out of the field. So, oh, if it were if it were me, I'd make two trips. I'd make one trip down there to look at it, to learn about it, and if it is what I think is going to be the grass for me, then I would set a date to order it when you can pick it up or they can deliver it because it uh-huh. cannot remain stacked on the pallet. It needs to be planted the next day. My old friend Alton Grimm that I worked with for a while up in uh, the hill country, we used to tell people, because we grew several acres of grass up there, and uh, we'd always tell people, if you can't get it all planted the first day, spread it out one layer thick, even if you have to just put it on the driveway, because it cannot remain stacked on that pallet. I personally recommend uh, a case of beer and a phone call to every strong friend you've got, and then it'll turn into about an hour's worth of work, and everybody will go away happy. All right, Bob. Hey, hey, thank you for all your information. I've listened to you religiously. I appreciate it, Larry. You have a great Sunday, and we'll talk again. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning. It's going to be Linda and Wayne and Annette and Brian, and Linda is next. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I've lived here for about three years, and we have an Orient pear in the backyard. Okay. And all three years, it has produced fruit. Well, this uh-huh. year, and also earlier this year, it had the white blossoms all over it, and the wind blew so hard that it blew probably 95% of the blossoms off. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not, but I just thought I would let you know. 
Okay, now, and it just it doesn't have as much fruit this year. It does. It's got two, two about okay. the size of a quarter, and black leaves, little clusters of black leaves. Now, okay. not all of them are black, but a good percentage. You I have don't a know des- whether it died or what. Now you. You have a tree that has gotten stressed. It has probably gotten too dry. I mean, we've had little rains, but not enough to water a pear tree. And when a when a pear tree and Orient is a good pear tree, um, but it uh, it does it is susceptible to a disease called bacterial fire blight and that's what you're looking at with those clusters and if you look not only will the leaves be black but little portions of the limbs will be black now it is a strong tree it can it can probably outgrow it but on a pear tree of any sort you never ever use synthetic fertilizers. You use organic fertilizers only. You never ever trim the tree because this makes it put on a lot of very soft succulent uh, growth that is very susceptible to, to the disease. And unfortunately, I suspect that one of your neighbors somewhere on the block had a pear tree that may have died because all of all pear trees do a whole lot better if they are cross-pollinated. Now, my old friend and mentor Alton and used to always tell me that if there's another pear tree within a quarter of a mile, then you're going to get good cross-pollination because the bees fly pretty widely. But for a person that just has one pear tree that has really produced well and then stopped producing, I always figure that something must have happened to its mate, as it were. So... If I were going to tell you to tell you what to do moving forward, uh, I'm going to give that tree a thorough, thorough deep watering. I'm going to turn that hose on very slowly, move it around, and probably let it run all night. I am going to put. Um, and how big in diameter would you say the trunk on this tree is? Maybe five inches. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put about ten pounds of organic fertilizer just on the ground all around that tree under the under the you know just from the trunk out to the drip line. I'm gonna look very carefully at the trunk of the tree and be sure that the root flare is exposed because it takes several years for the damage to show up. But if that tree looks like a fence post or a telephone pole coming up out of the ground, you're gonna have to. Yeah, you're going to have to pull the dirt, keep pulling the dirt away until you get down to where you see the roots starting to flare out. Virtually every tree that gets sold is already too deep in the ground, and then sometimes in planting they get buried a little bit deeper. So uh, actually the most important thing you do is to expose that root flare, and uh, you just you have to have air circulating around the trunk all the way down to where the roots start flaring out. You do those things, I think you're going to see an immediate improvement in the health of the tree. And if you have room, then you're probably going to go over to Fanix and get a second pear tree variety and plant, or you're going to you're going to tell one of your neighbors, "Hey, please plant a pear tree, and then we'll both get uh, pears because my tree will pollinate yours, and your tree will pollinate mine." But uh, we need to get that root flare exposed. We need to get some water very deeply into the soil, and we need to give that tree some good organic nutrition. And, um, you know, without seeing it, I can't tell you how long it will take to recover. But pear trees are, are pretty darn tough. Uh, the other thing that may happen, considering that it's under a good deal of stress now, you may see little sprouts coming up from the bottom of the tree. When that yeah. happens, 
cut them off immediately because those oh. sprouts are those sprouts are coming off the rootstock, not off the grafted portion of the tree. And if you don't cut all of them off, then pretty soon the whole top of the tree will die because rootstock oh. is actually much stronger. And so those things, I mean, take them off every time you see one come out because right now so they're, they're just the energy, huh? Yeah, they're just sucking the energy out of it. So that's okay. that's another thing I would do immediately. Also, there's another thing right at the where the ground level is, uh -huh. up about maybe 15 inches. It uh -huh. looks like it's split. Okay, and you that, can see inside where the inside of the tree is. It that's probably from having gotten too dry at some point. It shouldn't be a major problem if the tree okay, has some like that some. Since we moved in, so yeah. Yeah, the people before you didn't take as good care of the tree, and uh, but that's that's a very common thing. A lot of trees, when they're growing, if they're growing rapidly, you know, you what did our parents tell us about busting your britches or whatever? Uh, the tree literally is growing faster than the trunk can, than the bark can uh, stretch and expand, and commercial people actually will sometimes take a knife and make cuts up and down the trunk of trees like pecan trees because it allows the trunk to grow more quickly. So I'm not worried about the, the split in the trunk. What I want to know is when the new growth starts coming out, I want to know how the youngest, freshest growth on the tree looks. And as long as that looks healthy, then the tree is in the process of recovering. Okay. But right this year, it's probably not going to bear fruit, correct? No. No, it's not strong enough to bear fruit. You don't want it to bear fruit. You want it to you want it to get healthier, and uh, then you want to have a bumper crop every year afterwards. So just dig and and water. Dig water and, and put some organic fertilize and take all of those little root sprouts away. Right. Right. Okay. That is. Thank you very much. I appreciate your got time. your day's work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> thanks and goodbye. All right, back to gardening. It is a gorgeous Sunday morning out there and having lots of fun, like always, <laughs> getting to talk about our favorite subject, which, of course, is gardening. We're going to talk to Annette and Brian and Mike and James. Annette is up first. Good morning, Annette. Hey, good morning. A beautiful Sunday morning. Oh, it is absolutely beautiful out there. It really is. It's kind of, I think Mother Nature is kind of apologizing for that 100-degree afternoon <laughs> that we had two days ago. And she's saying, oops, I didn't mean to let summer uh, slip in there. So, oh, yesterday was pretty, and uh, today's even prettier. Oh, you're right. My problem is I think I'm losing my St. Augustine grass to weeds. Uh, it's grown, it's spread itself from the backyard where we planted it to the front yard. It looked beautiful. But this uh -huh. year, I've got the tiny uh, woody leaves uh, with tiny yellow flowers. Yeah, that's called. Everywhere. Yeah, that's if you what? don't like it, you call it straggler daisy. Some people actually plant it for a ground cover. If you're going to plant it as a ground cover, you call it horse herb. If you don't like it, you call it straggler daisy. And it's it is an issue i you know there are times especially in the hot dry summer that if it weren't for that i wouldn't have a whole lot in my yard but saint augustine will outcompete it if your saint augustine is good and healthy uh saint augustine likes you know plenty of fertilizer plenty of water and the mistake that i see so many people make 
with watering their St. Augustine is that they water frequently, but they don't water deeply enough. And they think these little piddly rains that we've had that are enough to make the slick street and kind of ruin your daily activities. But we haven't had a really good soaking rain, except in very limited areas. We haven't had a good soaking rain in four or five months. So when you water that St. Augustine, water it long enough to put down at least an inch of water and that may very well take, you know, an hour on each zone. But you need to be sure you're watering really thoroughly, and then it can probably go a week before you need to water again. I would suggest that. I would suggest um, you can you can feed. I'd probably be feeding if I'm using liquid fertilizer once a month. If I'm using the dry granular fertilizer, I'm going to be doing it about every three months. But plenty of water, plenty of food, regular mowing. Your St. Augustine should come back, and it should gradually choke out that straggler daisy. But uh, you know we've had we've had a couple of tough years. We've had low rainfall, and then we've had floods, and we. We've had a lot of pretty severely hot weather, and there are a lot of us. And like I say, I'm I'm up there with you. I've got plenty of straggler daisy out there, but uh, but it can and overcome. It, and Go it ahead. does look good when you mow it. It is green. But I have a new weed that's coming in. I think somebody called it dollar weed. Okay, dollar weed is a sign that you're watering too often. Uh, dollar weed is properly called hydrocodyl, and there's a very similar little weed that they call dichondra. And if you if you let your go, you let your Saint Augustine go at least a week between waterings. Within a month or two, the dichondra and the dollar weed will die out. Um, they that is a problem, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I see that so often where people are watering three times a week or something like that, okay. and Saint Augustine does. Well, I've been it's, watering maybe once a week, but we did have kind of a wet. Uh, and that's the whole thing, rain. you know, and, and those little piddly rains, while they weren't enough to uh, actually help your St. Augustine, uh, the dollar weed, the hydro, the uh, 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 and dichondra both love that kind of rain. When we get into the hot, dry summer weather with your weekly watering, they're going to go away. You certainly don't need to try to kill them. And if it is dollar weed, it's got that shiny, waxy, thick coating on the leaf uh, that that you know it. <laughs> you're not going to be able to get rid of it, but it will go away on its own when we do get warmer and drier and don't have those uh, you know constant seems like constant cloudy rainy days the forecasters say oh we're going to get half an inch of rain we're getting three quarters of an inch of rain and i get like three one hundredths of an inch of rain and that's good for the weeds and nothing else exactly we're out in the sand uh yeah oh yeah should i be mowing I would, for St. Augustine, I'm going to be mowing it about two and a half inches. Uh, I'm going to have my mower set right in the middle. I don't want to be mowing real high. Now, when we get later into the summer months, we'll be mowing pretty high. And I certainly, after the first mowing in the spring, I'm not going to set it down real low because you need to have as much green grass blade as possible because the green blades, of course, are what absorb the sun's energy, and that's what's going to help the grass put down more roots and spread more quickly so somewhere right in the middle uh if your mower has five settings put it on number three okay and that's what uh what it does okay yeah. uh so not much i can do about it one how long is it just, okay let me ask yeah. one other thing how long has it been since you fertilized uh it was either late january or early february do it again 
do it again. Okay. It's been three months, so it's time to fertilize. And any of the good organics, you know, Medina, Nature's Creation, Maestro Medina Grow. Is usually what we use. It's, it's as good as you'll find. <laughs> it's great stuff. Okay. My husband just bought from y'all Celeste Big, and some of uh-huh. the older leaves have turned gray and curling. Is that just from the trauma being planted? or Probably so. I, I wouldn't be concerned, but now Celeste, Celeste is a very good fig for this area. It's one of our closed-in figs, and sometimes you'll see it listed as Celeste. Sometimes they call it Celestial, but it's the same fig. But remember, it wants lots of water when it's watered, and it loves to have a good mulch over the root zone. So your figs, I'd try to keep a couple of inches of mulch, not right up against the trunk, but out over the roots. And I'm going to be watering very thoroughly whenever that soil's dry on the surface at the base of the plant. A lot of those leaves that were on when you got it, you know, you may lose a number of them because it is going to go through a little bit of shock, um, you know, just from being taken out of the pot and put into the ground yeah. and just in a in new home. But I, okay. I'm not worried about it. Celeste Fig is, uh, the new, is a good fig. The new growth looks good, and it's only been a week. Well, that's good. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's off to a good start, and I would not be at all concerned about it. I, I'm always amused because I had a guy in the nursery the other day, and he said, I just can't figure out what this plant wants. I've kept it in the sun. I've kept it in the shade. I've watered it a lot, and I've let it get really dry, and I just can't figure out what it wants. And I said, well, how long have you had it? And he said, about a week. <laughs> it's just, you know, the yeah, it's uh, it, it the way a plant looks today is the result of the care that it got probably six weeks ago. So, um, I, you know, it sounds like you're doing everything right. Don't worry about a few of the old leaves. Uh, do you have any new little figs set on it yet? No. Okay. I suspect you'll even get some fruit off of it this summer because Celeste, you know, produces really well at a very young age. And uh, just remember, winter and summer, uh, it will need to be watered unless we get good, thorough soaking rains. It's probably the thirstiest fruit tree that you could have in your landscape, but it's also about the most productive and the most trouble-free. Okay. So I thank you so much for your time and all your information. You know, it's always a pleasure, and I hope you will give me a call anytime you have questions. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, Have a good day. Okay, well, thank you so very much. And uh, I guess Brian is going to be up next. Uh, good morning, Brian. Good morning, Bob. This morning, Brian, sir. Again with the with the big cut ant farm next door of my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> been there, done that. I've uh, I've applied over five pounds of wetting sulfur uh-huh. to the mounds and to the runs. Um. They did come back once, back over to my fruit trees and my wife's new flower beds, and uh, then I I re-sulfured them, and they quit, but the neighbors came out and spread seven dust all over their yard between me and them. Yeah. And and they're talking about bringing out an exterminator to use Demon XT or something like that. I've never heard of it, but I... Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I, what can you say about uh, how many ways do you spell stupid? But, you know, I know it's. But 
I guess my main concern is is I'm not I'm not so much sure that they're going to destroy the mounds, but cause them right. to move. Yeah. So what do I need to do in preventative measures to keep them from crossing my pro- their property line, getting built up on my property again? Well, at this point, uh, it sounds like you've used plenty of sulfur, and it does take a little while to be effective because, as we've discussed, what it it does is kill the fungus that the ants eat. If you can stick a hose over on that mound and simply flood it, um, a lot of people are finding that just, in effect, drowning the ants. And, of course, you've got a little bit looser soil than some of us do in the hill country. But uh, just flooding that mound out now, um, which hopefully is going to kill the queen if the queen is still alive. Beyond that, I you know I doubt that you really have a okay, whole lot to me, worry about. Yeah, go ahead. One other question is they have mounds on both sides of the 14-foot-wide concrete drive. Is the mound under the driveway? It could be. It could be, but their tunnels are relatively open. They don't waterproof them as well as a fire ant colony does. So if you can flood it, that should be pretty effective in killing them. Well, I I, I can dump a 1,000 gallons on it this afternoon. I'll flood the crap out of it. I'll flood them down (laughs) the river. You you do 500 gallons on each side and... uh, just hope that the winds blow in the other direction when they get the the chemical weenies out there to to start putting out yeah. all that stuff. And I, I tell you what, I would I would be thinking about on the borderline between your property and this neighbor's. See if you can find either some activated charcoal or. Uh, better still, uh, might be easier. Uh, some biochar. Uh, which is just a very, very good active charcoal. Biochar is very, very lightweight. My friend David Vaughn brought me some of it, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'm I'm picking up a bag right now sitting next to me with two fingers. So even if you have to ship it, it's not going to be like shipping a bag of fertilizer. It's pretty inexpensive. My, green, my great organic green thumb nursery over here on 123 that you visit quite often. I wonder if they carry it. <laughs> I doubt it. I, I doubt it very seriously. Green, yeah, it's his green gate. Set of questions. Sure, I do have one other set of questions for you, quickly, because I get so easily confused. Um, name off the different things for weed control, fertilizer, and bug control on tomatoes, because I know I've got orange oil and BT and seaweed grass liquid, and I got a whole bunch of different stuff, but I don't know what the combinations are for the three different things. Well. For fertilizing, at this point, I'm just using a good liquid fertilizer, uh, like the liquid has to grow or, um, has to grow plant, that is, or their new liquid fish. That's, that's my exclusive fertilizer on tomatoes. I put a bunch of dry fertilizer in when I planted, and, uh, I hope right. yours are as pretty as mine. They're just gorgeous. To stop mine are beautiful. the- I just want to keep them that way. Right. And to keep the spider mites away, you're going to make a mixture with a gallon of water, two tablespoons of liquid seaweed, and maybe a tablespoon of liquid molasses. And you're going to be spraying that about um, every two weeks or so. 
And beyond that, uh, I'm just going to watch for problems. That's I'm going to do on a proactive basis. Beyond that, I'm going to be reactive. If I see any tomato hornworms, I'm going to spray with BT. If I see any stink bugs, I'm going to be using uh, this product called Spinosad Soap. It has gotten to be my go-to, yeah, go-to product for stink bugs and just about everything else. But at this point, I think all you really should worry about is is watering, fertilizing, and spraying with that liquid seaweed and molasses, and uh, uh, your plant should stay beautiful, and you should have a bountiful crop. Okay, and weed weed control was that orange oil and molasses? No, it's orange oil and vinegar. Orange oil and vinegar. See, I yes, sir. <laughs> no, you just have too much to keep up with. Uh, you know, and just write it down. One of my favorite sayings is another oh, Einstein yeah. Einstein quote where he said, the only things you have to remember are the things you can't look up. <laughs> and so my problem is I'm going to forget where I wrote it down. So, um, But it's just it's a gallon of vinegar with two ounces of orange oil and just a little squirt of dish soap. And uh, when I'm spraying around my tomatoes, around things that I want to keep it off of, I just carry a piece of cardboard, maybe two feet by two feet, and I'll just hold my cardboard up, and that way I can spray the weeds because the vinegar sure. and orange oil doesn't go through the soil. It just gets on the foliage and kills things. And that way I can... Ground. Yes, sir. And is all this information on your website or on your Shade of Green Shades of Green website by chance? I our website needs work. I'll put it that way. Our number one priority around here is taking care of people in the nursery, and uh, sure, there's we only have a couple of people, and I'm not one of them that are savvy enough to know how to really do that website. When it slows down this spring, I hope we're going to be able this summer to update it. We have some recipes and formulas on there. But I'm going okay. to send you to dirt, dirtdoctor.com. Howard's got most everything. Okay. I'll go to he Howard's has, website. Yeah, go to that. And you call me if you've got questions because we're always here to help you. Yes, sir. You have a wonderful day. I'm going to try to get this customer's privacy fence up finished <laughs> so I can go home work in my garden. <laughs> you take care of it, Brian. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much. You, Goodbye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, gosh, it's just such a pretty day out there. Let's uh, let's get back to the phone lines. It's going to be, I guess it's going to be Mike and E.T. and Mac and Gene, and Mike's going to be up first. Good morning, Mike. Top of the morning, Bob. And to you as well, sir. How are everything in uh, your part of Texas? Well, um, all things considered, uh, pretty dang good, I guess. Uh, you know, we're a little more stricter down here uh, on the masks and all this and that and uh-huh. than, than everybody else in the state. Uh, I guess uh, they decided to clamp down maybe because we're on the border. I have no idea. But um, my uh, gardenia leaves are turning a little yellow. What could be causing that? Is it the old leaves or is it the newer leaves? Oh, the older ones. And in that case, they've got just a little bit dry, Mike. And uh, when if, if a gardenia gets a little too dry one time... Uh, it's going to punish you for six weeks. It's going to drop a few uh, yellow leaves for six weeks, but if the new growth looks good, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. Oh, great. Um, and here I thought I was overwatering. Well, remember, there's there's too often, but there's no such thing as overwatering. You want to really water thoroughly when you water, but when it's dry on the surface, it's time to water again. And uh, water doesn't hurt anything 
the what happens is that people who keep the soil so wet that the water drives all the oxygen out of the soil that's what actually hurts because without oxygen the plants roots can't survive and when the roots start suffering a little bit the whole plant you know is in danger so don't ever worry about too much water but just be sure you don't let it go too long between the times you water uh, on the other hand, I, I see people, unfortunately, too often that I'll tell them it's gotten too dry, and they'll say, but I water it every day. But then when I ask them about it, uh, they're only putting enough water on to water the upper inch or two of the soil, and they're never actually getting the water down to the roots. Now, I know that's not your case because you know what you're doing. So be sure you're watering <laughs> really, really thoroughly. Uh, I hope I'm not giving you more credit than you deserve, but I don't think so. Uh, and if you've got a little Super Thrive uh, Put you know a little super thriving water on will help get those roots back in good shape. But this is not a a major issue. This is uh, okay. something just about everybody that grows gardenia sees at one time or another. And I did put some super thrive into with the has to grow also in a little bit of um, uh, molasses. Um, see, see, I told you you were pretty smart at what you were doing. <laughs> uh, what about I heard you earlier, but uh, I just caught the tail end of about the. Uh, apple cider vinegar should i add a little bit of apple cider mixture to that i just a very small amount yeah the the gardenias love just a little bit of acid and apple cider vinegar is just the smartest thing you can use so yeah i i would be great yeah i'd I'd be doing that uh maybe not every time but maybe once a month or so add a little apple cider vinegar to your mix um the other day got up to 106 here so uh, i was just yeah (laughs) I was just about to say, when we hit 100 here, you're one of the people I thought of. And I thought, man, I'll bet you when you go south and west, it's well over 100. So, yeah, you were on my mind. 106 is about what I would have expected. But it's back to being beautiful this morning, I'll bet you. Oh, it was fantastic. I just, it, it, I wasn't expecting, you know, 60-something. Uh, this early. Well, for me, it was like 49, which I sure wasn't expecting. And, uh, oh, my God. Yeah, it it I actually walked out, put the pups in the car and I went back in and got a jacket. <laughs> Cuz uh, I'm down to shorts and t-shirts. I don't think I'll have long pants on except when I'm working in the country for the rest of the summer now, but it was a big surprise, but a very pleasant surprise. Oh, yes, yes. All right, Bob, thank you much. Appreciate you. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Mike. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, it's going to be ET and Mac and Jeannie. Let's go ahead and talk to ET. Good morning. Morning, Bob. Morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm good, sir. How about you? Oh, I'm still kicking, so I'm doing quite all right. Well, My just kicking the right is, direction. Uh, yeah, beneficial nematodes on the greens, I'm on the blue sponge. I live up here in New Brownsville, and yeah. the plant house or the or the feed store loop do not carry them. They all they carry is that dry kind of form, and I've tried that. Yeah. Why don't you, and I'll happily, uh, you know, if you ever come into San Antonio, we've sure got them. I think Rainbow's got them. But go, I understand that the people that we buy them from are doing some direct shipment now. The company is called Hydro, H-Y-D-R-O, Hydro Gardens. Okay. They're up in Colorado. They're up in Colorado Springs, and I'll bet you they would be able to drop ship it to you. Now you're going to pay a little bit more money because you have to pay for shipping and all. And like uh, we usually we get one sometimes two shipments a week. But you're in New Braunfels and we're in San Antonio. So um, when you need it and it's not convenient to come into San Antonio, uh, contact them. I'm sure you can Google that. And uh, I understand that they're that they're 
you know, doing drop shipping now, too. So that's probably going to be what you'll need to do. Okay, thank you. Okay, another question. Uh, Bougainvillea, I think I chopped it down too much, right? And uh, at the very base, it's still got some green if I scratch it, but it, uh-huh. no, 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 no growth at all. Well, it probably got, you know, we didn't have a super cold winter, but we had a couple of two, couple of really cold days. In New Braunfels, you had even more than we did in San Antonio. So fertilize it, give it a little time. Um, I've seen, and, and be sure, is it in a pot or is it in the ground? No, it's in a container. Okay. Uh, I Be careful that it doesn't ever dry out, but be sure that it has, you know, that it drains. I actually see bougainvilleas kill because sometimes that hole in the bottom of the pot plugs up and people don't realize that they're just staying way, way, way too wet. But uh, even if there's just a little bit of life in it, bougainvilleas can regrow in a big hurry. So uh, next time it's time to water, mix in some good has to grow, maybe add a little bit of uh, Super Thrive to it and uh, hopefully it will sprout out from the base. Once it does that, it should recover pretty quickly. Okay, thank you. And one more, one more, maybe two more quick questions. Um, I got these little oranges, minute bugs on a bunch of the plants. Uh, will neem oil take care of them? Um, it almost certainly will, but now with neem, because it is an oil base, you'll need to spray early morning or late evening. We're getting to the point when the hot sun, uh, neem can burn. So as long as your neem is fresh, and that's the other negative about neem, it does not keep very long. It only keeps about uh, six uh, six months after you open the container. Next time you buy, I want you to buy something called Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D, Spinosad Soap. Uh, it will do as good a job of neem. It has a several-year shelf life, and there's not nearly as much of an issue with burning because it's water-based rather than oil-based. Yeah, I always hear you mention that. Then. One yeah. more fire, you let me go. I think it was you a while back mentioned about fire extinguishers. Yes, sir. Uh, that you were supposed to uh, take them, you know, because I always keep one in the back of my truck, and it's been sitting there for years. To yeah. take it, flip it upside down with a rubber mallet, you give a couple good wax. Yes, sir. And okay. you should be able, if you do that, and if it hasn't caked up too much, uh, you should actually be able to shake it and feel it moving back and forth. What you've got is a dry powder inside of that fire extinguisher, and every six months, uh, turn it upside down, whack it with that rubber mallet, and uh, because otherwise, I mean... It's uh, <laughs> it, it's like they say, you don't need it very often, but when you need it, you need it right now, and it better work. So, yeah, uh, you, yeah and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, that's one of the many things I learned doing our Citizens Fire Academy course uh, this past fall, and, oh, it's just so eye-opening. But everybody out there, if you've got uh, – and all the fire extinguishers these days are dry powder. Nobody has CO2 anymore. But uh, most important thing you do, besides, you know, look at the little gauge. Be sure it's still pressurized. Oh, yeah. But turn them upside down and whack them to be sure that powder hasn't settled, and hopefully you'll never need it. Yeah, I had one one time sitting loose in back of my truck, and a spring or that keeper came loose, and I, I thought I blew up my truck because all I could see was just orange or yellowish powder. Well, I had an engine fire one time, and let me tell you, I was real glad I had a fire extinguisher. So you take care of that one, and uh, I think the better t- care you take of your uh, fire extinguisher, the less likelihood there is to, uh, you'll need it. Something about karma yeah. there. E.T., have, have a... You have a wonderful day, and we'll talk again. 
All right, what a beautiful spring morning in South Texas it is, and fun to be here talking gardening with you. Uh, we're going to talk to Mac and Jeannie and Leo and Mike. Uh, it's probably actually going to get us through the rest of the show, so let's say good morning, Mac. Bob, how are you? I'm doing well. Hard to be doing otherwise on a day this pretty. Oh, it's so nice out. Um, Bob, I sprinkled about a half handful of Epsom salt on uh, my tomatoes last week, uh, uh-huh. last weekend. Um, you mentioned a ratio, though, with water, and I don't recall what it was. Okay, well, when I'm putting it on dry mac, I actually will use a couple of handfuls. Uh, Epsom salts, just magnesium sulfate. You're never going to burn anything with it, and um, and it's pretty cheap. But uh, if you want even faster action, then you put like two tablespoons to a gallon of water and water the plant with it. But always remember, it's not something that you, you're not trying to do anything to the plant. You're trying to modify the balance of calcium magnesium in the soil so uh you kind of spread it you know maybe make two or three gallons and and kind of pour it all around as far as you think the roots of the plants have gone uh try to get the epsom salts into that area because you you just want to get that calcium and magnesium back in balance because then the blossom and rot never shows up sure okay uh roughly how often not very i'd say once a year And, you know, it might last longer, but I'm much more into prevention than into control. And I don't want to lose a single tomato to blossom end rot. So, you know, it, 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 you might get away with doing it every second year, every third year, but it's just part of my, it's just part of my routine. When I plant, I do, you know, sprinkle the cornmeal around, throw a couple of handfuls of Epsom salts around, and then, I'm set to go. My tomatoes are shoulder high now. I've got some good wood to knock on here, so I can tell you that I have not seen one sign of early blight. And uh, my tomatoes, I've got yeah, I've got green tomatoes, and not one single sign of uh, blossom end rot. So if we could just obey, avoid the hailstones, I think it's going to be a pretty good year. Good deal. Good deal. Um, Bob, real quick, um, the EcoVantage. Uh is there, you know, I don't need a, a large quantity. I don't need a large amount of this product. Is is there anywhere that, you know, might provide not, not a major project amount? Call McCoy's. They were talking about carrying it. Um, and I don't know if if they're doing so, but they were originally the ones that were going to put it on their shelves. And like I say, I don't know if it happened. Um, if not, see if you got any neighbors want to do a project. If not, talk to me sometime, and I'll see how, how much uh, how many board feet are you looking at probably needing, Mac? Are they two by eight? What what are they? They're they're two by anything's. Uh, I mean, they, you know, the smallest I've bought is two by fours. The biggest I've bought is like two by twelves, uh, building a stairway, uh, at mm-hmm. one time. So two by anything. The basically they do two by lumber and then they do what they call five quarters, which is a deck wood. And it is a true five quarters. It's, you know, a quarter of an inch thicker than the, 
than that treated stuff that you get at the box stores and uh mm-hmm. it's absolutely beautiful wood i don't know if you've been over since i finished little deck out back here at the nursery but you can see you can see all three things you've seen where i've used uh two by sixes mainly you can see where i use the five quarters deck wood and since they can't dry it it doesn't dry well they can't do four by sixes or six by sixes and you can see where in building the support for this i created what they call a glue lamb beam which is you know just short for glue laminate uh, and i just i glued uh, uh glued and screwed three two by sixes together to make a uh a six by six which is what i use for the major supports and uh I don't know. It's just it's practically the only lumber that I build with anymore, and I just love it. I wish it were more widely available, but um, maybe it will be one of these. Check with McCoys. If they don't have it, talk to me about your specific needs, and I'll see if I can get you with Rex. I, I will, and I appreciate that, Bob. I've admired that, that multiple times, by the way. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> Thanks again, Bob. I'll be in contact. I'll look forward to it, Mac. Thank you so much. <laughs> Goodbye. You too. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and talk to Jeannie. Good morning, Jeannie. Good morning. Good morning. Bob, can you prune uh, a ficus tree and a chiffalera? Absolutely. Absolutely. The biggest, uh, we're talking ficus benjamina? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I would never, I'd prune it so much that I took more than about a third of the foliage off at one time. But if your ficus is doing well, if it's an adequate light, pruning it will only make it fuller and thicker. The biggest ficus benjamina I've ever seen many years ago was in Jamaica. It was probably 125 feet tall and 150 feet wide. I don't think your living room would accommodate a plant quite that big, so you're going to need to prune it with some regularity. Uh, If you want to, Jeannie, you can always do air layers. You could, in effect, pre-root a cutting and start some new ones from the pieces you want to cut off, but you may not want to go to that much trouble but that's the story on your ficus benjamina and spring is by far the best time to do that pruning on your chef is it a dwarf chef or is it a standard chef must be standard because it's taller than me well the leaves you know they come out as uh they'll have a little stem called the petiole and then you've got several leaflets on it of those little e- le- individual leaflets are they three inches long or are they six inches long Oh, no, they're, they're three. Okay, that may be a dwarf chef, Lara, because, you know, dwarf is is all in comparison. Dwarf can get up to 10 feet. Your standard chef, Lara, can get up to 30 feet. So, uh, yes, you can prune. Uh, that chef, Lara, is actually much easier to prune than the great big one, and it will branch out. Just cut it down to the point um that you want to that you want it to branch more again this is a perfect time of year to do it and once again if you wanted to make more you could actually do air layers on your chef layer as well which is basically making a pre-rooted cutting before you actually cut it off but both those plants uh pruning them don't take off more than a third of the foliage at one time and it'll just give you a, a thicker healthier plant and it really doesn't matter where you prune it at what point it doesn't. The new growth is going to come either from where the next leaf down the stem is or where the next leaf was. Because right at the base of the petiole, you have a little, it's called a, a, a lateral bud or, a, you know, and that's what's going to branch in or is going to sprout out and create the new branch. So you can cut it at almost any point because... Uh, 
you know, on your ficus and on your Scheffler, both the the leaves, the little lateral buds are not very far apart. You have to be careful on some things that have a very, what we call a long internodal distance, or you end up with a kind of a bare stick sticking up there and the growth comes out down below. But uh, no, just be sure your pruning shears are sharp and cut it at whatever point you would like it to branch. All right. Thank you so much.